Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 31, The Third Task. Dumbledore reckons you know who's getting stronger again as well, Ron whispered. Everything Harry had seen in the pensive. Nearly everything Dumbledore had told and shown him afterwards, he had now shared with Ron and Hermione, and of course with Sirius, to whom Harry had sent an owl the moment he had left Dumbledore's office. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Matt Potts. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So Matt, we're just a few weeks away from it being the cutoff date for when people can sign up for camp. May 26th is the last day that you can register. So if you would like to join us at our wonderful summer camp in just a few weeks, sign up now, notsorryworks.com. Also, listeners, remember you can subscribe for ad-free episodes on Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. That really helps us out. Vanessa, you had the great idea for our Every Flavor Bean Patreon perk today that we could have a conversation about what sort of obstacles we would put in our maze to confound champions. And I have some, I have some great ideas that I'm excited to talk about. <laughs> So if you would like to hear this Patreon perk or others, please go to patreon.com slash Harry Potter Sacred Text. Matt, you have a story for us today on the theme of spite. What story do you have? The story that first came to mind really complicated my thinking about spite, so I'm interested to explore it with you and explore spite in this chapter. So right after I graduated from college, uh, I was commissioned an officer in the Navy, and the first thing I had to do was go to school. I had to go learn how to be a naval officer. And the school was located in Newport, Rhode Island, so I moved to Rhode Island. You know, I was only meant to live there for as long as I was in the school for about six months. And so I moved in with just a bunch of other guys from my college who are also going into the Navy. And there were guys that I knew, but not super well. Some of them I didn't know very well at all. We just we graduated from the same college. That was the thing we had in common. And it was fine. I mean, the guys were all fairly nice. But, you know, like as in any situation where you're living with people that you're just getting to know, like there are sometimes you're feeling each other out and sometimes things go well and sometimes things go poorly. 
there's this one other guy who was a guy I didn't really know well from college. I knew him a little bit. His name was Damon. Damon was from New Jersey. He was pretty funny. Like he was kind of a goofball. He had very loud and brash and clear opinions about things and he'd state them pretty assertively. And that was mostly just fun and funny. He was a, he was a pretty affable person. Damon and I were generally friendly with each other. I remember there was one time that he said something to me and I remember the scene more than I remember what he said. Like it was in the kitchen and he said something to me that really made me mad, but I didn't know him well enough to actually feel like I could get mad in response. You know, it was like it, he felt a little bit too much like an acquaintance for me to like really engage him on it. And I can't even remember what he said. I, I have a vague memory that it was kind of lightly racist against Asian people. Uh. And so I had this immediate reaction, but I didn't want to engage him directly. Either didn't know him well enough or didn't want to have the confrontation or whatever. But I was really mad. I remember feeling like this anger and feeling this resentment inside me. And what I did still kind of mystifies me. Like I decided to make dinner for everybody in the house. Uh, (laughs) the, The next day I went grocery shopping and they have pretty good clams in Rhode Island. So I, I got some clams and I made a clam sauce and some pasta. And I, I remember I made some kind of dessert. I think it was some kind of like brownies or cake or something. But I remember doing it for spite. I wasn't doing yeah. it because I was really grateful to Damon or wanted to do something nice for him. I was feeling this anger and I needed to process that anger yeah. some way. And I did a nice thing instead of a mean thing. Now, I'm not trying to make myself look good here. I do mean petty things all the time. I just usually do them spontaneously. I, right. I, but I usually do them spontaneously when I lose my temper or something, right? This was more like, I'm angry. I don't know what to do about it. I don't feel like I can confront this person or I don't want to. And so I'm going to do a nice thing instead. And I'm not even sure why I like chose to make a dinner for them or what I was trying to get out of it or what how it would satisfy my feelings of spite. I think maybe it was either that I hoped that maybe he would feel bad because I had done this kind thing for him, like his feeling of gratefulness or his feeling of like gratitude or, or realizing that he owed me something would make him just feel obligated to me in some way and that would satisfy my my spite. Or maybe I hope that he would somehow realize through my generosity that he shouldn't have said the thing he said and therefore be compelled to apologize to me or something. I, I don't think there's a rationality to why I was doing it. I don't think it actually makes any sense, really. I should have probably just said something to him if he said something lightly racist to me. But because I didn't have the courage or the will to do that in that moment, what I didn't said was like, try to get at satisfying my resentment a different way. Try to make him feel guilty or obligated to me in a different way through this kind act, which raises the question whether it's a kind act. I think it was a spiteful act, right? I think it was a very effective spiteful act. I also recall none of those things (laughs) happened. Uh, I think Damon enjoyed the meal. He wasn't like, these brownies are delicious. (laughs) I'm sorry, it was racist, Matt. That's no, not what I, happened. And if I recall, I think I cleaned up after dinner as well. So I don't <laughs> I don't think it wasn't a very effective spiteful act, but I do remember the right. motivating feeling was spite, not kindness. I mean, it's so interesting. First of all, I really recognize this instinct of like, I know that I have spitefully listened to someone if I find that they've been talking about themselves for a really long time and like not asked me a single question. I'll be like, do you know what I'm going to do? To prove how ridiculous you are, I'm going to keep listening, (laughs) right? Like I have often done things that look really gracious because I want the upper hand morally, right? Like I am spitefully trying to prove that I am superior. And so I'm taking the high road, but only to stomp on their low road and like hope that the detritus from my stomping falls on their low road. So I, I, this really resonates with me. 
And it's really interesting to wonder about the impact of spite. So thank you for that great story. One of the things we talked about a lot on the podcast about various topics is like, what's the relationship between intention and action? Right. Like if you intend something bad, but it comes out good, is it good or bad? Or if you intend something good and it comes out bad, is it good or bad? I think we we have to ask those questions and there are important ramifications to those answers. And this is another one of those things. Etymologically speaking, the word the word spite comes from the Latin despectus, which means contempt. And that becomes despot in Mm. French. And then spite. Spite just means contempt. So if you do anything with contempt, you do it with spite. But that means like, can you do kind things with contempt? I think you can. I think all of us do kind things with contempt sometimes, right? That is often the only motivating factor that I have for doing the right thing. (laughs) Right. And so, yeah, I mean, I think this is interesting because I think spite is a feeling more than an action. So it it's a relationship to action is what becomes really interesting. And I think we're going to see some of that arising in this chapter as well, because we see people feeling resentment. We see people feeling feeling anger in this chapter, but that doesn't necessarily correspond to their actions all the time. Yeah. Vanessa, you are going to recap this chapter for us in 30 seconds. Would you like me to count you in? Yes, but before you count me in, Matt, I would just like to register a complaint to the listeners, which is that, in my opinion, this should be two chapters. Half the chapters before the third task. Okay, uh, thank you. Three, two, one, go. So Harry, Ron, and Hermione are really practicing to get Harry ready for the third task. Um, All of the families come to support the champions, and Molly and Bill come to support Harry, and that's so cute. And then it's time for the third task, and it's a maze. And I have a lot of questions about things that go on, but Harry and Cedric keep running into each other. Um, Fleur screams, Crumb, um, Crucio's Cedric, and then... Cedric and Harry run, decide to tie and they run to the thing together and they touch it at the same time and it's a port key. Good job. Thank you. What was it at the end? I I couldn't hear. It's a port key. Oh, okay. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. It it is a port key. Is that better? That's better. That's better. I I mean, I'm one to talk. I know when you get in that last 10, five seconds, for some reason, (laughs) speed corresponds with volume. (laughs) All right. This is a long chapter. Okay. Okay. On your mark. Get set. Go. Uh, So they're practicing the beginning and they see uh, Malfoy talking into a walkie-talkie or something. And then a news article comes out, which is about Rita Skeeter and how Harry's falling apart. And that makes everyone very mad. And then uh, the parents are there. And and Harry's like, why am I going? But he goes. And it's Molly and and Bill. And Molly's not super nice to Hermione until they tell her to be nice to Hermione. And then the third task starts. And it seems far too dangerous for children to be doing. (laughs) And and the thing about Floor. And then Crumb does an awful thing. But and then and then and then they answer the Sphinx together and they they a spider attacks and then they grab the poor kids in Oh my god, that spider, man. Yeah, I got very loud with spider attacks. <laughs> <laughs> so Vanessa, you know, one of the things about Harry is that in the series, he very rarely articulates actual hatred, <laughs> right? Like, he gets angry at times, and he goes into kind of adolescent or teen rage, which is totally understandable, especially given the deal that he has been handed by life and by the world and by Hogwarts and by Dumbledore, right? But in terms of articulating hatred and contempt, which is just what spite means, if we believe our etymology, like this chapter has one of the clearest examples of this. You know, Harry has just learned about the fate of Neville's parents. And at Dumbledore's request at the end of the last chapter, he has not shared this information with Ron and Hermione. And so he actually goes to bed at the beginning of the chapter thinking about Neville's parents and also comparing his own plight 
you know, having lost his parents and trying to imagine the kind of suffering that Neville's going through. But that empathy for Neville also leads to like this surge of contempt, of spitefulness. There's a there's a line in the chapter that says, lying in the darkness, Harry felt a rush of anger and hate toward the people who had tortured Mr. and Mrs. Longbottom. And, you know, he keeps thinking about the other families that have been torn apart, like his own, by Voldemort. And he just has this kind of surge of anger and hatred towards Voldemort. He sees that Voldemort is the source of all this pain. Spitefulness almost seems like too petty a word for what he's talking about. But insofar as spite is meant to convey contempt, this is contempt, right? This is, he has utter contempt for Voldemort because of all the harm and pain that Voldemort has caused. And the moment is important here, right? Like, it's important that this surge of hatefulness, this realization, I mean, just narratively in the arc of this book and in the series, that this surge of hatefulness and resentment and contempt and spite for all the harm that that Voldemort and the Death Eaters have caused comes just before he has this most dramatic so far in this series encounter with Voldemort. He's had other ones, obviously, but where Voldemort is coming back and where he sees someone murdered in front of him, it's getting real. And the fact that violence getting real is accompanied by like this emotional surge within him. You know, we're asking the question, we're always asking the question about how we match intention to action. And in some ways, you know, the feelings are going to shift and over the course of the next three books, like what actions arise out of this, what's happening in this moment and what's going to ha- what he's learned in the last chapter and what's going to happen in the next chapter is what carries forward the next three books. Like what are the acts? What are the actions that Harry's going to take in response to this? And I also wonder, spite is sometimes productive, right? It can make a person who is looming large in your head small again. And so I do wonder if, you know, we're going to see Harry be incredibly heroic in the next chapter. And I wonder if part of this is the context of having information about all of the reasons to hate these people who he's about to encounter. Yeah, He's going to be able to hold a spell with Voldemort for a really long time. He's going to be able to conjure his parents in order to give him support. He is going to be able to take Cedric back, all these like deeply heroic acts And sometimes, like, you know, Harry is so incredible that it is possible that he would have been able to do all that anyway. But motivation and, like, the opportunity to have ruminated on this first can often help. And so he is able to behave, I think, because he has this information for a little while ahead. Yeah, I think that there's something gives him courage in the next chapter. I mean, he's a courageous kid. Yeah. And that's, he also just has courage. But something gives him resolve in the next chapter and in the next three books. And I think it is just like the acute memory, not just of what happens to Cedric in the next chapter, but Neville and his parents and all those things that give him that resolve. I think contempt and resentment are part of that. And I think that's, I think you're right. I think that this is why it's important to separate intention from action, right? Because negative affects can have productive outcomes in the world. And we should think about their effects as much as those intentions. You know, an, another place early in the chapter where we learn some things about spite, or I think that we can see spite operating, is just in kind of every detail around the situation of the story in the Daily Prophet about Harry, right? So early in the chapter, you know, we as readers observe Malfoy, like, from a distance, whispering into his hand about something with Crab and Goyle. And then, not coincidentally, we will later learn, the next day uh, the Daily Prophet arrives and Hermione gets it and Ron gets it and they try to hide it from Harry because there's a long story about how Harry is falling apart and not stable and, and should not be participating in the in the Triwizard Tournament. This part really gets right. 
<laughs> and, and says all these like half truths or untruths about Harry. And I feel like the whole thing is like just there's spite around the whole thing. I mean, it, Draco feeds the information to Reader Skeeter just out of spite, pure spite. Like he he he's he wants to cause harm to Harry. He resents Harry, and he knows the effect that this will cause. And it's for pure spitefulness that he shares it with Rita. But also, you know, Rita, you could say that she has contempt for the truth. Like she speaks in spite of the truth or despite the obvious facts. She doesn't actually care what the truth is. She's either trying to sell newspapers or trying to, to create a big story. And that's its own kind of spitefulness, right? When you act in utter disregard for the goodwill of others because it serves your own purposes, that's a different kind of contempt, right? It's not like the kind of active hatefulness that we saw out of Harry a couple of minutes ago, but that utter disregard for people or putting their needs and wants aside for the sake of your own with absolute disregard, that's its own kind of contempt, right? Its own kind of spitefulness. And that's that's what Rita's doing, I think, when she writes these stories. Yeah, it's fascinating how many different intentions or desires are at play in an article like this. And I think that we see this just in the media in general, right? That so many people have so many angles that they're playing, but you're right that the contempt is for the truth. And really, the contempt at the end of the day is for the reader, right? That like, no one seems to care that the reader is being lied to. And often contempt can be just not thinking about someone, right? The opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference, right? Like the greatest contempt you can show someone is just by not thinking about them. And no one is thinking about the reader in this article. And yet I do think that Rita happens upon this like huge truth, which is that this child should not be (laughs) in this game. So again, the separation of like, you can be motivated by any number of things. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is Me Undies. I love them so much, and Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some Me Undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of Me Undies lounge pants, and Colette 
deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of Me Undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. Me undies. Comfort from the outside in. I'm really interested in this idea of when spite does serve us. We see this moment in the chapter where Cedric gets attacked, brutally attacked by Crumb. And we will know that Crumb is imperious and so did not knowingly attack Cedric. But Cedric's experience is that he was just crucioed, was just tortured with pain by Victor Crumb. And Harry comes and helps Cedric and they stun Crumb. And Harry and Cedric have this like brief conversation about what should be done. And Harry says we should probably send up sparks so that somebody comes and gets Crumb because if we just leave him here, then Crumb will be attacked by the blast-ended scroots in the maze. And Cedric says this spiteful thing, right? He says he would deserve it. He just cruciated me. He would deserve to be attacked by a blast-ended scroot. And this is a self-protection technique, right? That spite, if Cedric were to have emerged from the maze, would protect him against Crumb, right? Like, spite is a distancing emotion so yeah. that the person can't hurt you a second time. But what's so interesting to me about this, and I think is just true in our lives in general, is that the spite is, would actually be against the wrong person. Crumb was imperious, right? Like, he didn't knowingly do this. And when I think about things like anti-immigrant sentiments, it's often spite because you're misunderstanding a situation, right? Oh, those people are taking our jobs. And it's like, well, actually, right? Like, that is not what's actually happening. And Cedric is only seeing that Crumb is being violent to him when actually there is something bigger going on in the background here. And so the concern with spite, I think, is that it is this like reasonable distancing action that you can be taking out on the wrong people or for the wrong reasons or without all of the information. Yeah, I think that's right. I think this is a real, I think everything you say about spite is Correct. It's, I mean, it functions in many ways the same way as anger. Mm-hmm. I mean, insofar as it's related to contempt, I mean, contempt is, gets closer to hatred. We had a hatred episode before where we talked about hatred as wanting the other not to exist at all. And I think some of the things you said about indifference really speak to that, how like being indifferent to the other, pretending they don't exist, goes towards that hatefulness. But insofar as like spite is more like anger, anger is like, oh, that hurt me. And I need to protect myself from being hurt, <laughs> right? Like that's a different kind of anger does not judge the existential value of the other. It judges the threat of the other, I think, right? And so there's a way in which a certain kind of spitefulness is meant to protect you, right? Like if this person hurts me, like I'm not going to, I want distance. It's As you said, I think really rightly, it's a distancing emotion. It's a, it's a self-preservation emotion. But especially in the magical world where people can be controlled by curses, like knowing where the threat comes from gets really complicated, right? And spitefulness can get misdirected or misattributed in ways like this one. Like this is not going to be the only person 
in this book who gets imperious now that we're moving into book five and six and, and so forth, right? And this becomes a really difficult problem. Yeah, and, and it be, you know, and we saw in the last chapter, this became a problem during the trials of like Ludo Bagman and others, like how culpable are they? How much spite should we have toward them? How much do we need to blame them for, you know, responsibility folds into this all pretty, pretty quickly. Yeah, the only thing I would disagree with what you said, Matt, is when you said, especially in the magical world. I feel like there's just as oh, yeah. much nefarious, you know, stuff happening in the background of our muggle lives where you don't really know where the blame is. I mean, we just had, you know, this is a little over a year ago now. My younger stepdaughter, Amy, was being bullied at school by one of her good friends. And Amy could have been mad at Kaylee. But it turns out that Kaylee's dad had died a couple of years yeah. previously, and Kaylee's mom was getting remarried, and Kaylee was having big feelings about that and was acting out, right? Yeah. And like, so like the thing to be mad at was cancer, you know? But I was feeling very spiteful towards Kaylee until yeah. I knew that, right? I was like, excuse yeah, me, fair. what? And then, of course, you're just like, okay, we need to help Kaylee figure out better coping mechanisms than throwing dirt at Amy, but... No, that's fair, of course. Uh, yeah, you're right. You're right about that. I, the Imperious Curse, I think, is a special case. But yes. I think you're also right to draw attention to how, like, we often are really, in some ways, like, we act in ways that we don't want to act. Right. Just because there are forces, emotional forces and other forces that push us in those directions. So that's that's fair enough. Yeah. And Kaylee and Amy are really good friends again. Yeah. I think this leads to one interesting situation of spitefulness at the end of the chapter, and maybe the one that most resembles the story that I gave. So at the end of the chapter, Harry, because he's been attacked by the spider, reminder listeners, he should not be competing in this tournament. <laughs> because he's been attacked by the spider, he fractures a bone or he hurts his leg badly, and he can't run towards the cup. And Cedric can, and Cedric gets to the cup before him. And then Cedric, you know, just turns and pauses and says, you know, I wouldn't be here if you hadn't helped me. And Harry's like, well, I wouldn't be here if you hadn't helped me also. And they kind of get into this, like, contest of, like, spiteful deference, where each one starts saying, like, no, you should take it. Just go ahead and take it. Why don't you take it? You ought to have it, not me. And the other one says, like, no, you ought to have it, not me. And I feel like there is this kind of, in the same way that I'm spite cooked a dinner... <laughs> for my roommates. <laughs> I think that they're just sort of saying like, you know, you can have the cup, but I'm going to have the moral superiority. Yeah. Like you can take the championship and the glory, but I'm going to be the one that knows that I was the more virtuous one who gave up the thing that I wanted for the sake of you taking advantage of the fact that I helped you. Right? right. And so neither one wants to be the one who only got it through the help of the other. And so they would rather lose with contempt than win. <laughs> right. Yeah. And hardcore relate to this. Like, imagine <laughs> someone saying to you, no, you take it. And you're going, okay. <laughs> like, I know, right? <laughs> I don't know who that person is. They're made of like the same stuff as golden retrievers. And I love Fred that for everyone. <laughs> sure. <laughs> who are golden retrievers? I just like, I want yep. that for people in the world. But I mean, essentially what they are acknowledging is like, neither of us got this purely, right? Like neither of us actually deserve right. this cut. And that's the negotiation right. that they have, right? Where Harry is like, look, you helped me with the second task. And Cedric is like, well, you should have gotten more points for the second task because you actually were trying to save people. Well, you helped me with, right? Like they they are having this conversation that yeah. are like, neither of us actually deserve it. And therefore, right. like it wouldn't feel good 
and you would know that you could have beat me. Yeah. It's like a weird macho thing, but right. I'm like totally into it. And I I would absolutely do the same thing. I'd be like, no, I don't <laughs> I don't want it like this. That's right. Yeah. Given the two of them, like you're right. As soon as one person says you should have it, like they are caught in this loop. Yeah. Right. Where where neither can take it. Because once they both know that they did not win it on their own, the person who accepts it is the one who's saying, that doesn't matter because I want it. And like, (laughs) that's the thing, right? (laughs) If one of them in that moment, rather than saying, you go get it, started running, the other one would have done their best to try to run. And so what, what we're actually learning about is the nature of competition and that competition is about spite. It's about contempt. It's about wanting to dominate, right? It's about saying like, I want to hold you in contempt. And so instead of competing for the cup, what they are competing for is moral superiority. Oh, my gosh. He can no longer run. So the only victory he can have is a moral victory. Yeah. So he makes it one immediately where he says, like, you go get it. <laughs> I don't even want it anymore. This is the competition. Now it's like, OK, who's going to win the moral argument? <laughs> right. We both are. Let's take the cup together. Right. And so <laughs> what Cedric arguably could have done is like, OK, yeah, I will go take it. Not because you gave me permission, but because I win. <laughs> Right. Like, I hate when people do this stuff to me, like someone interrupts me and I look at them and they go, no, go ahead. As if they are like (laughs) done some great moral thing. And I'm like, yes, I will go ahead because you interrupted me. (laughs) Thank you. Like, and then (laughs) I even have to stop myself from saying thank you. I'm just like, you didn't do anything morally good here. Right. But what I love about what Cedric and Harry end up doing is that it subverts the whole thing. Right. They were going to come out together. They even, to some extent, subvert Voldemort, right? Like, I, it's really this beautiful thing where they're saying, like, the competition isn't what matters. What matters is some form of, yeah. like, righteousness and fairness, and yeah. which I love. Thanks for talking about Spite with me, Vanessa. Yeah, thank you, Matt. Great. Vanessa, it's time for our sacred reading practice. And this week, we are once again doing the practice of sacred imagination. So I'm going to read a a short passage from the chapter. And I'm going to invite you and our listeners to try to dwell as deeply into the passage as they can to try to take some place in the passage. Maybe that means taking up the perspective of a character. Maybe it means being a fly on the wall somewhere. But try to really have a sensory experience of the chapter and one that maybe you can describe and put into words afterwards. Okay, can't wait. The passage I'm going to read comes from when Harry is wandering through the maze. At this point, Harry and Cedric believe the other two competitors have been eliminated. They've heard Floor scream and the Crucio thing has happened and they've left Crumb behind. They've split up and gone different directions and Harry is making his way through the maze on his own now. But Harry suspects that he's one of the two final competitors and that the two final competitors are from Hogwarts. Harry moved on, continuing to use the four-point spell, making sure he was moving in the right direction. It was between him and Cedric now. His desire to reach the cup first was now burning stronger than ever, but he could hardly believe what he'd just seen Crumb do. The use of an unforgivable curse on a fellow human being meant a life term in Azkaban. That was what Moody had told them. Crumb surely couldn't have wanted the Triwizard Cup that badly. Harry sped up. 
Every so often he hit more dead ends, but the increasing darkness made him feel sure he was getting near the heart of the maze. Then, as he strode down a long, straight path, he saw movement once again, and his beam of wand light hit an extraordinary creature, one which he had only seen in picture form in his monster book of monsters. It was a sphinx. It had the body of an overlarge lion, great clawed paws, and a long yellowish tail ending in a brown tuft. Its head, however, was that of a woman. She turned her long, almond-shaped eyes upon Harry as he approached. He raised his wand, hesitating. She was not crouching as if to spring, but pacing from side to side of the path, blocking his progress. Then she spoke in a deep, hoarse voice. You are very near your goal. The quickest way is past me. So... So will you move, please? said Harry, knowing what the answer was going to be. No, she said, continuing to pace. Not unless you can answer my riddle. Answer on your first guess, I let you pass. Answer wrongly, I attack. Remain silent, I will let you walk away from me unscathed. Harry's stomach slipped several notches. It was Hermione who was good at this sort of thing, not him. He weighed his chances. If the riddle was too hard, he could keep silent, get away from the Sphinx unharmed, and try and find an alternative route to the sender. Okay, he said. Can I hear the riddle? So I was Harry. And I don't know why. It must be from the movie. I always picture the maze is like quite wide and suddenly standing there with the Sphinx, it felt very narrow to me. Like mm. I am suddenly in a very small space with something that looks like a lion. And yeah, like I have a healthy respect for animals, right? I just got back from a pilgrimage where we saw a horse and people just walked up to the horse and started petting it. And I'm like, mm, that's a horse. It has teeth. Why would you do that? And like, no one got bit. The horse was very friendly and liked having its nose scratched. But I think I would just be intimidated by being in a small, confined space with a creature that I've only seen in books before. And then he has, like, the presence of mind to be like, okay, I can walk away, right? Like, there's just, like, this calm reasonableness in the face of this, like, very overwhelming sensory experience of being trapped in a hedge with a creature that looks like a lion. There's a lot of yeah. calmness that he is able to conjure. Yeah. I felt that too, especially at the end in the situation you described, which is like, I think when a very scary prospect is given to us, we immediately look for the earliest possible out. Right. And Harry knows he has another out. So he, he waits. He's like, okay, let's hear the riddle. Yeah. Right? Like there is like a sense of calm and focus there, which is admirable because the prospect of this creature attacking is very frightening. And if I get it wrong, I'm going to attack. And I think my inclination would be like, oh my gosh, if I get it wrong, it's going to attack. Right. Just to focus on that very bad possible outcome where he's just like, okay, I still can get out. I can walk away and be exactly where I was before trying to find another way through the maze. And there is some calm there. Yeah. I mean, I read some calm too, but you know, I invited you and the readers to try to have a sensory experience and I did get a sense of the growing darkness which for me I haven't seen the movie of this book but for me it seemed to be more in the just the diminishing light than the narrowing of the walls of the of the maze but it did feel darker I guess the, the book says it's getting darker and that's why he thinks he's getting closer to the center of the maze 
But for me, it, you know, it's kind of a cerebral passage. And the thing that really struck me as I was reading it this time was he almost figures it out. Like he knows the crumb thing doesn't make sense. Why would crumb do this? Like he doesn't actually believe crumb is evil the way maybe Ron has has bad cause to believe crumb is evil. <laughs> he knows these things about Karkarov, but I think that he's mm-hmm. like, you know, this this is just not a wise play. Even if you are trying to win the cup in a cheating fashion, he he thinks it just doesn't make sense, but he has this urgency. There's only two of us left. I, I don't have time to think about that now. I need to go get the cup. It's the same thing about how the competition is kind of distracting him and taking his attention away from the thing he should be paying attention to because when I was trying to really be in the moment and because it was cerebral, I was in Harry's head and noticing the darkness and all these things. I was also kind of in his thoughts and I just noticed like, no, I want to pay more attention to this. This is actually an interesting question. Why did Crumb do this? But there's no time. I got to move on, right? Yeah. And that kind of sense of urgency of the competition keeps him from actually paying attention to the thing that he wants to in some level and also he ought to. Like there's something wrong with his competition. There's been something wrong with it from the beginning. Right. And all these little clues, including this latest one, are the clues that they should be paying attention to. Yeah. And it just like reminds me of just the abject danger of this for all of these children. And I think you were so right in reminding us that Harry was actually right all along in being concerned for Gabrielle and Hermione and Cho. Like everyone has been at risk this whole time. This is this is an incredibly scary experience. And the red sparks thing is really confusing to me because what if you mm. are so attacked and passed out that you can't get to your wand, right? Like yeah, that seems insufficient. And so, yeah, I, the, the danger of this moment, right? Which is not a moment in which anything bad actually happens to Harry is yeah. really interesting that even in this moment where nothing bad happens is so deeply scary. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. That was a fun passage. Thanks, Vanessa. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This week's voicemail is from JM. Hi, Vanessa, Matt, and actually Casper, if he ever listens to these ever ever again. Um, 
I am a new listener. I've been binge listening to you guys for the last couple of months, and I'm on book four with Vanessa and Casper. And Casper has been explaining that he is so intrigued by owls, and I've loved this. And he got my thoughts, You, all of you got my thoughts going, on the purpose of owls and cats and toads. And my idea comes from the fact that I play Dungeons and & Dragons, and all of these creatures are options as familiars. And... I started thinking on how these creatures help their wizards and witches with their daily life. Owls obviously carry posts back and forth. Cats um, like Crookshanks and even Mrs. Norris, who is a familiar for a squib, which I find fascinating. And that got me thinking about Trevor, um, who is Neville's toad, and what purpose he might provide and what help he might provide to Neville. And... It made me realize that all of these creatures are exceptionally magical. Owls are able to find anyone anywhere. Cats are able to slink and slunk and help and can communicate to their owners, as we can probably tell, especially with Filch and Mrs. Norris. And so I started thinking about how Trevor would help Neville, and I realized that Trevor helps Neville make friends. Trevor is the one who gets lost and helps Neville realize that he needs to ask for help and talks to Hermione. And in so doing, Hermione talks to Harry and Ron. And so the four of them, although Neville isn't necessarily one of the Golden Trio, is still a close friend with Harry, Ron, and Hermione. Trevor is threatened by to be poisoned by Snape. And so Hermione helps him and builds that friendship. And I don't know, I just think it was re- it's really sweet. The seemingly innocuous Trevor really does play a role and is a familiar and is there for a purpose and is Neville's friend beyond just a comedy point. Thank you so much for doing this podcast. It is amazing and I love it so much. You help me get through my days while my kids are at school and help me get my jobs done. So again, thank you. Bye. JM, thank you so much for this voicemail. And as a pet owner and lover, I love this theory that the role of Trevor is actually to make friends for Neville. And obviously, Trevor also has, you know, bodily autonomy and his own journey to go on in his life. But I think that, yeah, he really is a sponding thing for Neville. I'm really compelled by this idea of what these animals do for us. And yeah, blessing for Trevor. James, thanks for your voice memo. I don't really know the concept of the familiar, but I love it. And I think you're absolutely right with everything you say about Trevor and how Trevor fulfills this role, this function for Neville. And it just got me thinking about our dog, Suki, and how Suki is a companion to me, is a friend to me in really fundamental ways, but also got me thinking about how she draws parts out of me that I don't always go to myself, like her capacity to feel joy and to have wonder and excitement at just everyday things. That's something that I value. It's not something that comes as easily to me as it does to her and she brings it out of me every day and that's she's my familiar and that's great it is now time for us to remember members of our community who have been loved and lost Oma Maria who is 85 a fierce funny and lovable matriarch Aunt Liz, who is 79, a retired teacher, 
devoted gardener and lover of books. Gustavo Alberto Fogo, who was 57, a great brother, friend, husband, father, and uncle. Arvis Green, who was 58, an artist and flautist extraordinaire. And Rolf Staffens, who was 79, patient, loving, and a train enthusiast. May their memories be a blessing. Matt, who would you like to bless this week? I would like to bless Madame Maxime. She is not a character who's shown up much, except by sort of attribution, people commenting upon her the last several chapters. But we see her in this chapter, and all it notes is that her eyes are red, and she's looking down. Yeah. She's had these challenges in this novel. She has this this fight with Hagrid. I mean, what we're learning as time passes and chapters pass and pages turn in this novel is just how much discrimination there is in the wizarding world against giants. And this is a moment where you can just see how deep like all this is weighing on her and how how deep her hurt is. And I, I don't know, maybe I'm being too generous or optimistic, but I read in her hurt also that she has this sundered relationship with Hagrid also, that he was actually a warm support and a friendly person. And now she doesn't have that either. Yeah, I think she's really suffering. And so I just wanted to give Maxime a blessing. Who are you blessing, Vanessa? I would like to bless Molly, who just shows up for Harry in this chapter. We we find out that family members have been invited to come and watch The Last Task. And, you know, Harry is like so sure that the Dursleys didn't show up that he's like, I'm just going to go to the library. And Cedric is like, dude, no, come here. And it's Molly. And I don't know how this happened if McGonagall wrote to Molly or Molly wrote to McGonagall. But like awesome conversations happened in the background in order for something perfect to happen for this child. And I love it. And I love how nonchalant everyone is about it. They're not like, wasn't this great? Isn't this a really big deal? They just like all have lunch and it's very chill. Yeah. And I'm just a blessing for Molly for being awesome. Next week, we're going to read book four, chapter 32, Flesh, Blood, and Bone, through the theme, Vanessa, of intention. Ooh. Before we say our thanks, we want to just remind you that you just have a couple more weeks to sign up for our summer camp, Come Away Magnificent People. We have a Harry Potter pilgrimage, an Emily Dickinson pilgrimage. In just a few days, we also have a class called Remembering All Too Well, Taylor Swift and Confessional Writing. And you can sign up for all of those things at NotSorryWorks.com. This was a Not Sorry production. We are a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are edited and produced by AJ Yoramas. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. Special thanks to those who are leaving reviews on Apple Podcasts. This week, we especially want to thank Postmodern Peach and Emmygal22. We also want to give special thanks to JM for their voice memo this week, to Lara Glass, Julia Argy, Margaret H. Willison, Nikki Zoltan, Courtney Brown, Casper Terkyle, Stephanie Paulsell, and everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones this week. Matt, it's real. It's real soon now. Matt, it's real soon now. Camp. I felt like you went Beverly Hillbillies for a second there. Like, <laughs> it's real soon now. <laughs>
Mass real soon now. Um, wow, is that how I sounded? <laughs> it did a little bit. I was like, are you are you doing an accent right now? Oh, you're not. You're just talking. 